Take your copy of God's Word and open to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We're going to begin reading with verse 4, even though we've already covered part of this. And we're going to read through verse 25, even though we're not going to cover all of that. But I think that it is important because you need to be familiar with the the entire passage as as a whole. So Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Again, we're not going to cover all of that ground today, but I wanted you to be familiar with it because it is part of the entire narrative. So Jacob actually preached the first eight verses of chapter 8 last week. Of course, that means he covered verses 4 through 8, where Philip preaches the first sermon in the book of Acts to non-Jews, specifically Samaritans. 
Now, I'm not sure there was a group in all of the Middle East that the Jews hated more than they hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a group of half-Jews. They were not just some other ethnic group in the Middle East. They were ethnic mutts to the children of Israel. Understand, when the northern kingdom of Israel was carried captive into Assyria, 2 Kings tells us that the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Serveum, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they, those Gentiles, took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So the king of Assyria planted Gentiles in the northern kingdom that had split away from the southern kingdom of Judah under Jeroboam. Two very significant things happened once those Gentiles were planted there. First, they created their own form of Judaism. In fact, 2 Kings tells us that a a Jewish priest was sent from the Assyrian captivity to Samaria to instruct these people on how to worship according to the Mosaic Law. Uh, Understand, according to 2 Kings... Every nation still made its gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. So they worshipped those pagan gods. But the writer goes on to say, they also feared the Lord, Yahweh, and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So they had this this perverted form of Judaism intermingled with pagan idolatry. And the Jews in the first century despised them for that. Now there's there's a second reason that the Jews hated the Samaritans. And it had nothing to do with religion. The poorer Jews that were left behind by the king of Assyria after Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom, those poorer Jews intermarried with those Gentiles and produced a race of half-breeds, at least in the minds of the Jews. They were, they were half-Gentile and half-Jew. And they certainly hated them for this. In fact, John 4 tells us that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, and those are the two reasons why, at least the predominant two reasons why. To, to call someone a Samaritan in the first century was the equivalent of a racial slur. We know what a, a racial slur is. That's, that's certainly what the Jewish leaders intended when they called Jesus a Samaritan. John 8, one of their most heated exchanges with the Savior, the Jewish leaders said to him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Look, no, no wonder they were so angry when Jesus made a good Samaritan the hero of one of his parables. Oh, the Jews hated him all the more for that. Now, Jesus actually had a couple of interactions with the Samaritans during his, his ministry. I'm sure you were at least familiar with one of these. First, Jesus encountered a Samaritan woman in John 4. She was ultimately brought to faith 
by Jesus and ended up bringing more Samaritans to Jesus to hear Him preach. That was very positive. The second encounter with the Samaritans was not nearly as positive. In Luke 9, once Jesus had determined to go to Jerusalem, a village of the Samaritans rejected Him. He he sent the apostles to go ahead and prepare His way, and the village rejected Him. And here's the reason it says why. Luke 9, 51. Because His face was set toward Jerusalem. Now remember what the Samaritans had done. They had erected their own religion. In fact, their form of Judaism was headquartered in Mount Gerizim. In fact, Jesus acknowledging Jerusalem essentially was discounting their headquarters of worship. And that shouldn't be a a surprising thing. Jesus had told the Samaritan woman, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. The difference between the Samaritans in Luke 9 and that Samaritan woman back in John 4 is that she believed Jesus. These Samaritans did not. And so they did not allow Jesus to pass through. They rejected Him. And when the Samaritans rejected Jesus, two apostles asked Him if He should call down fire from heaven and wipe them out. That's in Luke 9, 54. These two disciples, by the way, one of them, we just read His name, These two disciples are the sons of thunder. That's not a compliment, by the way. You you may take it that way when you read, but that's, that's not at all a compliment, not intended to be. You see the sons of thunder in calling fire down from heaven, right? They were two brothers, James and John. Now just tuck that back as we work through this. We'll talk about it later. It'll really become pertinent next week when John arrives here. Other than that, Jesus' ministry was relegated to Jewish Land. He did encounter other Gentiles along the way, but always on Jewish soil. Understand, Jesus came to the Jews as their Messianic king, offering them the long-awaited Davidic kingdom. He even told the apostles during His personal ministry when He sent them out, He said, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Nevertheless, we know the end of the story. The Jews rejected Jesus as king. They had him murdered, executed by Pilate. So with all of that history between the Samaritans and the Jews serving as our backdrop to this text this morning, here is Philip in a Samaritan city, preaching Jesus. See, there is a lot going on here that we don't always get when we just read through this text. And this is precisely what Jesus had told them to do back in Acts chapter 1. Luke tells us that Jesus told the apostles, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we should really see Philip's ministry here as an extension of the apostles' ministry. Perhaps this is why he's one of only two other men in the New Testament that performed signs and great miracles. He's actually an extension of the apostles' ministry. 
Well, once persecution came to the Jerusalem church, we saw this last week, verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Once this persecution came against the Jerusalem church, they were scattered. Jacob preached that last week. Well, Philip, one of those seven deacon-like men chosen to serve back in Acts 6, he found himself in Samaria and he had much success. Verse 8 actually says, as a result of Stephen's preaching and his healing ministry, there was much joy in that city. Well, praise God for that. That brings us then up to our text this morning. The name of my sermon this morning is an early religious charlatan. An early religious charlatan. In this passage, we actually encounter a man far more interested in magical signs and powers than he is in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So beginning, verse, verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, amazed the people of Samaria saying that he was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. This is sort of, a, sort of like a flashback in the, the narrative here. It, 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 Luke is essentially saying, before Philip got there, before Philip arrived in this city, they had long been influenced by this magic man named Simon. That's what he's doing. So he's, he's sort of just looking back to what had been going on. I've always enjoyed the, the stories of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. For, for you fiction lovers, I actually read Twain's A Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court a few years ago. Really good read. Anyway, that doesn't matter. This, this man... Simon reminds me of Merlin, if you're familiar with King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Merlin was a man who dazzled that land with magic. And that's exactly what we see here in Simon. Simon was very influential in this city, amazing them with what probably is occultic, if I had to guess. Many commentators certainly believe that. He claimed to be somebody great. And his magical abilities seemed to back up that claim. But he wasn't only pulling the naive of society. Luke is very specific. He displayed such magical powers that they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. He had a lot of sway here. Then notice this. They said, the people said of him, he claimed to be someone great, but the people said this about him, this man is the power of God that is called great. Or perhaps it could be translated, this man is called the great one, the power of God. There are at least some commentators that take this to mean that they gave him a divine status. They believed he was an incarnation of the highest God. Daryl Bach writes, quote, It seems likely 
that the claim to being the great power means being divine. End quote. They believe this man was God wrapped up in the flesh. I think you can see the problem here. Considering the Messianic expectations, not only in Samaria, but also in Israel at this time, coupled with their paganistic desire for showy, magical gifts, that seems plausible. I mean, that seems probably like what's going on. Interestingly, church history is quite replete with references to Simon. So much so that F.F. F. Bruce says, quote, Simon the Sorcerer, or Simon Magus as he's usually called, plays an extraordinary role in early Christian literature, end quote. He's here, but he's written about in history. That doesn't mean that that history is Scripture. Early Christian writings are not Scripture, except for these early Christian writings, of course. But they are interesting. He's been called the father of all heretics. Irenaeus, an early Christian, actually credits him with being the founder of Gnosticism, a heresy which, by the way, that foundation of Gnosticism is laid before the New Testament is even complete. We see it in more fully in the second century. He is said to have traveled around with a former female slave prostitute that he also claimed had magical abilities. Hippolytus, a second century Christian theologian, he wrote a book entitled Refutation of All Heresies. Anyway, he said this. This is interesting. That Simon had himself buried alive in Rome, claiming that he would rise on the third day. Unfortunately for Simon... That didn't work out so well. Look, even if some of this history is exaggerated, this doesn't bode very well for this man that all of these these histories have been developed around him. It doesn't give us much hope for him, in addition to what we see here in Scripture. Anyway, it says in verse 12, But when they believed... Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So remember, these these Samaritans, uh, according to what we looked at last week, heard him, they saw the signs that he did, unclean spirits were coming out of many of them, many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Whatever skills Simon the sorcerer had, Philip had more. Simon's abilities were quite literally dwarfed by the works of God through Philip. But notice a significant difference between these two men. This is important. Simon preached Simon, claiming that he himself was somebody great. Or if commentators are correct, he's even claiming perhaps divine status. Philip, on the other hand, was not preaching Philip. Philip was preaching Jesus to the people. Notice, he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The goal of these two men could not be more different. It's interesting, by the way, that Luke here records that Philip was preaching good news about the kingdom of God to 
The Samaritans, now the kingdom of God is mentioned like eight times in the book of Acts. The last time that we saw it mentioned was way back in chapter 1 when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So why is is it being brought up here again? Well, the Samaritans were not ignorant of kingdom promises. You remember back in John chapter 4 when Jesus had that conversation with the woman at the well. Do you remember what she said? John 4, 25. That woman said, quote, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. End quote. Now Jesus ended up explaining to her that He is that Messiah. But the point is, the Samaritans had some understanding of the Messiah. They had some understanding of the promises that David's greatest son would reign over the world on David's throne. They knew that. So Philip preaching the kingdom of God to these people is not as far away from their understanding as you might think. Certainly Philip taught that Jesus was indeed that Messiah that that woman was looking for, that the Samaritans were looking for. Jesus is David's greatest son. So Philip familiarized them with the name of Jesus Christ, it says here. I don't don't think it's a stretch at all to say that Philip preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners so that we may be saved. And what is the result? It's right here in the text. They believed Philip. That's what happened. They were converted. The Holy Spirit took that gospel message, opened their heart to faith. They repented of their sins. They changed their thinking about Jesus and themselves. They trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. That's what happened. What did that move them to do? We've seen this before, the day of Pentecost, back in chapter 2. This is the biblical pattern. When a person commits to following Jesus, when they believe the gospel, the very first act of obedience is to be baptized. That's a public profession of faith. A public profession of an internal faith. Baptism merely shows the world what's going on inside. And that's what happened here with these People, I read a book several years ago on baptism by a man by the name of Bobby Jameson. The name of the the book I always thought was interesting. It's Going Public. He's got a subtitle, Why Baptism is Required for Church Membership. But Going Public is the name of the book. I guess you can tell from the title that he makes the case that submitting to baptism is really the first step in telling the world that you trust Jesus and that you are putting all of your, your eggs in His basket. But you're trusting Him alone and nothing else. Listen, that's the biblical position. If you are a believer and you refuse to be baptized, you are being disobedient from the get-go. That is the very first thing that we are supposed to do. Anyway, these people here in this text were not disobedient. The opposite, actually. These people submitted to believers' baptism upon their profession of faith in the gospel that Philip had been preaching to them. You know, while I'm here, let me, let me make one more point. This passage is actually a good text proving 
a pretty significant Baptist distinctive, uh, believer's baptism. I guess it's no secret, if you've been here for any length of time, that we do not baptize infants here in a Baptist church, and there's biblical reasons for that. In this text, every single one of the people baptized here, men and women, had heard the gospel and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Every single one. And their example here in Acts 8 mirrors quite literally every other example of baptism in the New Testament. We then believe in believers' baptism, not the baptism of unbelieving children and infants. Listen, there are enough lost people that will sneak into a church even when we are trying hard to stop it. There is no use exacerbating the problem by adding people we know don't believe, unbelieving children, to church membership. I mean, we are just making the problem worse. Anyway, enough of that. That seems clear enough. All right, notice verse 13. Even Simon himself believed... And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Okay, listen. The Bible does not always distinguish between truly believing and merely professing to believe. We see this most clearly in the Gospels. For instance, John chapter 2. Here's what it says. Now when he, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. Sounds a lot like Simon, right? Keep reading. But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for He Himself knew what was in man. These people professed faith in Jesus, but Jesus knew they were not truly believing. They weren't truly converted, and so He didn't commit to them. That seems to be the same thing going on here with Simon. I'm not going to cover the, you know, the rest of the passage today, but I think that's going to become very clear, even in what we read a second ago and what, what Peter says to him. And listen, some of the Stories about him in Christian history may be exaggerated, but it is difficult for me to imagine that a history would be created around a, a man like that who was actually a very faithful church member. I mean, that just doesn't add up. This man does not seem to be a believer at all. His faith appears to be very superficial, enamored with the signs Philip performed more than anything else. And remember, this, these signs... Philip was able to perform, at least in the mind of Simon, were one of the reasons he had lost the city. One of the reasons he'd lost all of his disciples. Even the statement that he continued with Philip is odd. That's not normal language. In fact, Daryl Bach says, quote, this is not the normal way of describing discipleship, end quote. I, that, true, that's right. And look what Luke stresses. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
Simon does not seem to be humbled by the fact that Jesus would die in our place for our sins. He's still focused on the wrong thing. He, he's focused on these miracles. And he realizes that whatever abilities he had, whether it be sleight of hand or occultic or whatever, Philip's abilities far outshined his and he could not get over it. Verse 14 says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. I'm not going to exhaust this verse. Brian can do that next week. But I just want to sort of begin it so we can make a connection point. Just because of everything that I brought out in the beginning about the Samaritans. Look, it had to be big news back in Jerusalem that the Samaritans of all people had embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, everything they were, all of that strained relationship between these, these half-breeds with a half-religion and the people of Israel. They had to be shocked. And yet here they are, the Samaritans, believing the gospel. The same gospel we've encountered throughout the book of Acts so far that everyone else believed. This was big News And sending a delegation from Jerusalem to check on them, that just makes sense. What's going on with these people we haven't liked all our life over here? Let's go see what that's all about. How they found out in Jerusalem? I don't know. We'll let Brian tell us next week. But the apostles seemed to think it was a big enough deal that it needed to be checked on. That, that fact alone tells you that this is a significant event in the book of Acts. And what we will encounter next week will tell you just how significant of an event it is. It is a noteworthy mark in Christian history that the gospel has now made itself outside the Jewish people to the Samaritans. This is a big deal. And so the group of apostles sent Peter and with him one of the men that had said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and kill them just a few months back? You have to wonder what John thought as he headed to Samaria, knowing that he had uttered those words. All right, I know we are stopping in the middle of a thought, in the middle of a sentence, really, but the elders discussed it. We think this is probably the best place to break off. The Lord willing, Brian will complete it next week. But I do have a few applications that I want to I bring out. First, religious charlatans are not new to our generation. We just have more communication skills today. We, we can find out who they are and where they are and what they're preaching. It's everywhere. We need to run from a teacher who claims to be great, whose message is himself and his tribe and not Jesus. Secondly, it should be startling to say the least that the charismatic movement today is chasing the very same things that Simon is condemned for right here in this text. And specifically what we'll look at next time. Here's what John Phillips writes, quote, The faith that rests on miracles is not worth much. If we win people with sensationalism, 
We will need sensationalism to keep them. End quote. A- amen to that. And I think we see that in our day. Jesus, back in Matthew 7, said on that day, the day of judgment, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. When we're done studying Simon, I think you're going to say, that sounds a lot like Simon. No less concerning is that it sounds like many in our generation as well. Let us make sure we desire Jesus for who He is, not just so we can have some ecstatic experience. Now those are the warnings in the text. But there's some good things in the text too. There's a lot of hope here. Point three. There is hope in the gospel even for devoted pagans and sinners. That's exactly what we find in the Samaritans. In fact, that's the, that's the very reason the Samaritans were despised. They had, they had taken God's truth, mixed it with all kinds of religious heathenism, and produced a religion of their own making. Not only that, we know from biblical history and just human history that false religion often encourages loose living. And the Samaritans certainly were no exception. I'll just call the woman at the well as exhibit A. She's on, you know, husband number six, except he's not her husband, right? She's just living with him. She was not the only one in Samaria that way. That's typical of what was going on. But the gospel offers complete absolution, complete exoneration. I'll put it this way. The, The gospel offers complete pardon from sin through the work of Jesus on Calvary's cross. And that's exactly what the Samaritans received by faith here in these passage, in this passage. The, these pagans in our text heard the gospel through Philip. They repented. They changed their mind about their gods, about their religion, about their own selves even. And they fled to Jesus by faith. And in doing so, they found eternal life because that's the only place eternal life rests. Why? All because God sent Philip their way. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, that same promise is offered through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to believe, trust Christ alone for eternal life, just like the Samaritans right here in our text. And let me give you this positive instruction. If you have believed and you remain unbaptized, then you are refusing to obey the very first command of Jesus of a newborn believer. Baptism's not going to save you. Let me be clear about that. But if you're a believer, you are right now, saved by the grace of God, and your sins are wiped away. But if you're unbaptized, you are refusing to follow the very first thing Jesus tells us to do. Publicly profess Him through baptism. So if you have a desire to be obedient to our Lord by being baptized, to join the church, to commit to serve God alongside us, see a church member, I mean a church church leader, and we will we will begin to move forward in that process today. I hope this passage has been a great 
benefit to you, and I do apologize for stopping in the middle, but I think Brian will handle it next week. Stand with me, if you will.